Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section. You may or may not be aware that this week is Mental Health Awareness Week. We asked on Twitter whether your workplace were doing anything to mark the week. 48% of you said yes, 41% said no, and 10% said they weren't sure. According to the Office of National Statistics, the number of people with mental health issues is on the rise, and there are a record number of people off work due to long-term health issues. Here on Cross-Section, we don't promise to be able to put the world to rights, but we do talk about the big stories and the issues facing society and try to answer the question of what difference does being a Christian make? How can we add something to the conversation our peers are having? Well, this week I'm joined by Danny Webster and we are joined by special guest Mark Pickering, the CEO of the Christian Medical Fellowship. Hi Danny, hi Mark. Hello. Hi Joe, great to be here. So you both sort of only just made it in the nick of time. I thought I might be doing a one-woman show today. Trouble, trouble with the trains? Oh, one of my trains was cancelled, so I had to get a slower train. Not mm-hmm. too bad. Yeah, something like that. But I should put it on record that I got here before then. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's important to note. So Mark, you work for the Christian Medical Fellowship. I presume that means that you are a Christian. And I'm happy to confirm that. <laughs> we do like to check that with our guests from time to time. Could you tell me how that happened? Absolutely. So at the Christian Medical Fellowship, it's a national membership charity. We've got 4,800 members. That's doctors, nurses, midwives, students, from right through from student days to retirees. And I got involved with them as a first-year student. So when I was starting out med school, thinking, what does it mean to be a Christian and a doctor and what about all the ethical issues and talking about faith at work and what about healthcare mission and all that kind of stuff, career choices. Uh, CMF was a fantastic place for me to, to be. I learned so much and I met so many great people. So I've done various things for CMF over the years. And back in 2018, the, the chance came up to be the chief executive. And after quite a bit of thinking and, and talking, praying, then here I am. And I've just been here over four years, so it's a, it's a fantastic job to do. Well, it's really good to have you with us. From time to time, I talk about a resource that the EA has called Living for Jesus at Work. And I quite often have been asked by healthcare professionals or people who know healthcare professionals, you know, what's it like to be a Christian in the NHS? And really practical questions like, are you allowed to tell your patients that you're a Christian? Could you just give us a little insight into that? Absolutely. Short answer is yes. Uh, the long answer is it depends on the situation and how you do it. So the, the General Medical Council is the, the authority that regulates doctors. You've got the Nursing and Midwifery Council as well for nurses and midwives. And they have guidance on talking about personal beliefs and that sort of thing. So if you think about you know, other things, you know, would it be appropriate to tell your patient that you were a Leeds United supporter? Mm-hmm. I mean, in some types, some situations that might be really natural. In some situations, it might sound a bit weird. Mm. Uh, or, you know, what would you know, would you give them their, your views on Brexit or you know some other kind of uh, political issue of the day? It might actually be really relevant. It might just come up in conversation. But you'd want to think about well, how is this related to what we're talking about? What they've come for? 
and am I actually respecting the band, professional mm-hmm. boundaries between them and me as a as a, a doctor or a health carer? So I think generally patients actually are more interested in talking about faith than doctors are. And faith is something that makes a big difference to people's lives. You know, if you're going through a terminal illness or a mental health mm-hmm. crisis or something else, if you're trying to find meaning in life, it's a really natural question. Do you have faith that helps you in a time like this? So we encourage our members to take a spiritual history, talk about things like that. And, and it may be perfectly natural to mention something. You know, if a patient says, well, what did you get up to at the weekend, doctor? Say, oh, I went to church and I saw some family. That's what we call the faith flag. You drop it into a conversation. It identifies you as uh, as a person of faith, and then you know, they may or may not pick up on that. You know, they may say, "Oh, you too, I'm a Christian as well," or they might just pass over, and that's absolutely fine. So there's lots of ways to do it. If you're going on further questions like, "Would you pray with patients?" I have prayed with patients on occasion, and sometimes that's been really welcomed by them. But like with anything else, you wouldn't want to just drop it straight into a conversation. You want to build up to it, see if it's the right thing to do, see if, if it's appropriate. But there are ways to do that. So we actually train our members. We do a training package called Saline Solution, which is being sold in the right concentration in a healthcare context. That's a very clever name. We like it too. <laughs> <laughs> I know you spend quite a lot of time in prison. What, how do you end up there and what do you do there? It's always a great conversation starter, <laughs> isn't it? So I'm what we call a secure environment GP. So that means I work in prisons and other places of detention, particularly secure mental health hospitals. So mm-hmm. I do a couple of regular clinics a week in secure psychiatric hospitals. And these are people who have been detained under the Mental Health Act, usually with schizophrenia mm-hmm. or, or similar conditions they've committed a crime that's been affected by their mental health disorder and so they're detained under the law they're looked after by psychiatrists while they get treatment or assessment and then they have physical health needs as well like anyone else so I go in once a week and I do a clinic and and sort things out uh, for them there and that's a really great part of my week and I also do some of the some of the occasional clinics and prisons as well but I found that's just a fascinating place to be and it's a great place for a Christian to be because in the dark places we can actually shine some hope and and uh, you know yeah be a positive influence in there so it's another part of my week that I really enjoy. It almost goes without saying that for a long time particularly in the last three years headlines have been featuring stories about the NHS about wait times or strike action or, you know, lack of beds. Do you have a gut feeling about the future of the NHS? I think it has a great future potentially. I mean, it's a great concept. I think there are so many problems with it. I mean, we mustn't forget the NHS is the fifth biggest employer in the world. Wow. Dramatic pause. So, you know, and, and it's so complicated like that. And, and obviously as society change, changes, uh, healthcare treatments change, demographics change, uh, the, the economy changes, all of these things affect it. Uh, and then obviously we've just come through COVID, which has disrupted healthcare to a massive degree, mm-hmm. you know, put waiting lists through the roof. And then we've got mental health challenges for carers, for patients, etc. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure points there. I think there's there's always a crisis somewhere in the NHS, but I think the concept of having a nationalised you know, health service where 
basically anyone can pitch up and get treated. It's a fantastic thing. You know, I do some work in, in the Philippines in some prison health care, and I think it's very different there. You know, if you're a poor person, you pitch up sick in A&E, they'll often say to you, well, here's what you've got, here's what we can do for you, here's the list of things you need to go buy, and then if you can buy that, then we'll treat you. And that's just totally different. So I always come back from there just loving the NHS mm-hmm. for all its problems. And I think we, yeah, we need to pray for people who are in the government, in healthcare leadership, because there are massive hard choices to make. I think things about funding of services, whether the NHS can afford everything that it, that it wants to do, they're the kind of things we need to, to get onto. And then there's other things around specific conditions or areas, especially when, when society's expectations change. And we're going to talk about one of those in a minute. Mm. And, and that can change very rapidly. And then you, you see a particular population that are really unhappy about what they're not able to get on the NHS. And I think that's just you know, the way that societies change uh, rapidly and it takes time to catch up. So I think, yeah, the NH- I don't fear for the NHS's future. It's going to look different, it's going to evolve, and there's always be hard political choices to make. And we need good leaders in healthcare, particularly Christians in there, being constructive. And that's one of the things that we like to do at CMF, to encourage our members to step up. We have a Christians in Healthcare Leadership Network for that very reason, so that people feel supported and actually taking on some of these hard leadership jobs in the NHS. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Um, let's get into today's stories. So the first story I'm going to talk about today is earlier this week, the BBC released a new panorama documentary called ADHD Private Clinics Exposed and was basically looking at the... It was comparing NHS consultations and evaluations leading to diagnosis for ADHD compared to private clinics and comparing some of the, the pros and cons, I suppose, in those those two worlds. What did you make of it? I thought it was fascinating. It was a documentary making a point, and I've learnt to watch such things with a slight scepticism or cynicism in that it was making a point that these private clinics aren't doing the job properly and they are misdiagnosing people. And therefore you watch it and you look at the consultations that were done with these private clinics and you think they are rushed, uh, they're casual, even down to the appearance of people, the context of the course. And you think, wow, if this is a lifelong condition someone's being diagnosed, this isn't an appropriate way to do it. And they're making hundreds and hundreds of pounds for an hour-long consultation on this. So it was clearly shocking in that regard. But I think the wider context of the huge increase in people asking questions about whether or not they have ADHD is the underlying thing mm. that struck me. Is, and is it something that has just gone undiagnosed for so long and there are this many people? Or has it increased in recent years? And why is that happening? That's interesting. Or do people not have ADHD and they have other, perhaps, kind of, maybe there's a spectrum where people might demonstrate some of the tendencies but not have the clinical diagnosis of that. So it feels like there's much more here going on, but it was a, it was a powerful documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've seen some of the clips and read the coverage and, and it's a, certainly it's a condition that we see a lot of in prisons. A lot of prisons 
are undiagnosed uh, male with ADHD. But I think, like you say, Danny, it was really interesting to think about well, why are we in this situation? There's no question that ADHD is a condition and it can be disabling and it can be incredibly disruptive if you have it severely and it's not recognised. So there's definitely a better recognition of it. There are good treatments out there for it. And because we're recognising it more and more, and more people are coming forward and then you know, less, more moderate and lesser degrees of it are being recognised. So lots of people are thinking, could this be me? And that's one of those areas where you know, the demand has shot up, the NHS can't cope, so of course you have private clinics will say, well, actually we can provide that. And in some ways that could be a really good service, mm. you know, to say actually here is an area where the NHS cannot cope, people are suffering, we can step in and help them. Obviously, you've got to think about the quality, you know, whether there's a sort of a, a decent business model that's not taking advantage of that. And what's the advice they're being given? And I, I certainly had some concerns from the advice that was being shown in that clinic. And I think there was one of the comments was, we don't have a, there's no reason for us to overdiagnose. Well, of course there is if you're a profit-making mm -hmm. private company and you only make your money if more people come through the doors. You may not be trying to over-diagnose, but certainly it's an advantage to you to say, yeah, come on, we will deal with you, give you great service, give you this, off you go, you'll, you'll feel satisfied. But then if you're not the ones that pick the pieces up, that's terrible. And I think there was that clip, wasn't there, of after a short consultation, this man was told, you know, you now have a lifelong diagnosis. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. It's like, no, it is not. I thought the, the NHS psychiatrist was clearly much better, you know, three-hour consultation, really digging down into what's happened in your life. Could this? Could your symptoms be explained by other things? You know, in, in prison, we have, we deal with people that's like, okay, if we treat your ADHD, you will stop punching people when you get frustrated and you'll start coming to prison. And that's a really good thing. So we do find people that they go off their medication and then they get into fights, they come back to prison, it's like, well, let's get you back on it. But then there's lots of people who will think, I was just a bit fidgety at school, I have hard, hard yeah. time concentrating. Yeah. Could be many reasons for that. And we mustn't rush to think, here is the problem and here is the solution. Could you just answer, this putting you on the spot with a medical question. It was mentioned lots of times in the documentary that, that people were prescribed stimulants. Mm. In my ignorance, I would have thought someone with ADHD would need the opposite of a stimulant. Could you, could you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, in, in, a number of, in a number of situations, and I'm not an expert on the psychopharmacology with, uh, with ADHD treatments, but in a number of situations, it can be a little bit counterintuitive where it's like where you stimulate certain receptors further, then they kind of will downregulate and then they will come to a, a better place of things. Any psychiatrist that I've just butchered that for, please forgive me. But so, yes, it does sound counterintuitive, but the effect is that your your mind and brain sorts itself out and then is is, is able to be calmer. So yeah. That's really helpful. I So Danny and I were talking about another panorama documentary yeah. a few weeks ago. You were on that episode, yeah. weren't you? I can't remember. Pregnancy crisis centres. Yes, yes, about pregnancy crisis centres. And what we were talking about, and I know you've you've thought about this a lot, Mark, was was basically what a bad and biased documentary it was. That the agenda was so obvious. And I guess I 
how to put it I, I guess I don't have as invested a stake or as thought through a moral position when it comes to ADHD so I'm aware that I don't watch it with the same kind of emotional involvement but but how how do we watch something like panorama in light of of previous episodes where we where we thought that the journalism doesn't quite stack up but I think it, that's the question for how we consume all media mm. in that I don't think we consume media in a way that just takes everything automatically as true and accurate. I think we ask questions of it. And I think we need to recognise where our biases are and where we are more likely to take things as read and or where we are likely to read something. That's nonsense, that's rubbish. Mm. I mean, it's why it's useful to have, to, to get our sources of news and our media from different places. So we're not just reading one thing. Sometimes I look at articles, in fact, there was another article this week about pregnancy crisis centres that basically had a point it wanted to make. And the writer went into it, wanted to make a point, and they made their point. Okay, I read it. I read it with one set of eyes. Someone else would read it with a very different set of eyes. And I think that's just something we have to be very aware of. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, we, we mustn't assume that a journalist is a neutral thing, is that a journalist is a person like us with assumptions, prejudices, mm. worldviews, and we need to be able to think who is making this, why are they making it, what are they trying to do, and how fair are they being? I guess a lot of these things you can start with a question and if you start with a question say let's dig down and try to answer this that might be fair enough but if you start with an assumption you know, here is a point we want to make we are going to go and get lots of interview footage and cut it so yes. that it just shows the thing that we want it to show then you know that can be terrible I had a meeting with some pregnancy crisis center leaders just this week and that was you know they represent more than 60 crisis pregnancy centres around the country. None of theirs were the ones that got onto TV. Mm. Quite a few of theirs were actually mystery shot by the programme makers, but because actually the information they're giving is good and it's solid and it's sound and even their opponents couldn't fault it, then they didn't feature. But, you know, that programme didn't say, we're really happy that the vast majority of crisis pregnancy yeah. centres are providing good, reliable information. They just said, here is a terrible problem. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's been interesting watching some of the the Twitter world erupt with people who are more personally invested in uh, the diagnosis of, of ADHD. Like I've seen people say, sort of outraged, saying the documentary was, was sort of damning all private ADHD clinics, which as a, I guess as a more neutral observer, it was clear to me that it wasn't. Like, I think it was quite specific that this is, it wanted to highlight a problem to be aware of yeah. going into private ADHD clinics without saying this is a, a widespread problem. Mm. I think that's true. And, and we mustn't you know, think that all private healthcare is bad. There are some very good ethical private healthcare providers who really are providing a service, doing something and NHS doesn't have the capacity mm. for. And there'll be lots of people who have been faced with a three to five year wait to get assessed, who then you know, paid a bit of money, gone and had a good assessment, got the answer that they need, and their life has been changed for the better. So we must forget all of that in this. But clearly there are some forces, either commercial or others, at work that we need to be careful about. Mm. We've said already that it's Mental Health Awareness Week, and this feels like a good moment to say if this is something you're concerned about, that you should seek advice and seek help and get in touch with your GP. How as Christians do we balance 
the very real medical issues surrounding mental illness whilst whilst there be there's a clear intersection with our spiritual lives how do we view those two things both separately whilst acknowledging that they're part of the whole yeah it's a great question far too many christians don't think well enough about mental illness and mental health and ill health i think we need to have better conversations in in the church about it many people you know will be perfectly happy saying to their pastor that they've got here arthritis in the hip and that's meaning they can't get to church but if they say actually they're really depressed and they just can't face you know joyful worship songs that sounds a bit different and but we need to be able to to have those conversations and not feel guilty about it because you know having a mental illness is not is not necessarily an indicator we've done something wrong or that we're you know unspiritual thinking badly about it any more than it is having a physical illness so we need to be able to talk better about it and be more open about it, it uh, yeah, there obviously are some interplays you know for instance if we've made a choice in life that we know is sinful or unwise then that may play on us in terms of guilt feelings that may exacerbate mental health problems but equally if we're just you know, living through life circumstances that are totally beyond our control you know whether it's a family member who doesn't know the laws or someone else who's struggling in a different way or a financial problems we can't get out of that in itself is going to exacerbate things as well and i think we need to get better at talking about mental health problems asking for help and, and praying for help as well mm -hmm. because you know the lord comforts the brokenhearted and we, we want to be able to come to him with those problems and not feel that we can't ask them mm -hmm. but i think sometimes we can that can be almost uh and it's unrealistic expectation people have that, oh, if I'm a, a good enough Christian, I should be joyful all the time. Mm -hmm. And actually, if I'm not, then there's something wrong with mm -hmm. my spirituality and my relationship with God. And I think God certainly does bring joy, mm -hmm. but actually that doesn't uh, remove the fact that people may have mental health challenges mm -hmm. and that they shouldn't be ignored or kind of assumed that actually if you try harder or if you are more spiritual, or if you sing louder in worship, mm. those will go away. And I think that's sometimes one of the things where people feel unable to talk about it or less able to talk about it. Now, I think as churches, we need to remove those barriers so that people are able to be honest about the challenges they're facing. Mm. Yeah, so many people in the Bible faith, you know, were great spiritual giants faced massive mental health crises. You know, Elijah wanted to die, didn't he? You know, the Apostle Paul had talks about having treasure in jars of clay, you know, and he went through so many problems in life and was often burdened with them deeply. And yeah, yeah, triumphant living doesn't mean we have a plastic smile and nothing ever bothers us. It means that through it all, we depend on God rather than our own strength. Mm. Again, this, this might be a question that feels a bit unfair, so I apologise if it does. But thinking particularly about mental illness that presents itself in more psychotic episodes mm. how christians who have loved ones families or friends that suffer in that way mm. i know it can feel like a bit of a unfair disadvantage when it comes to trying to reach them with the gospel i just wondered if you had any wisdom into that yeah i mean i do have some psychotic patients who think they are the messiah 
And so, you know, clearly that would be a different conversation with them and I'd want to be much more careful about saying anything faith-related that might just play into that. But I think, you know, there, there are ways that even in those situations you can do it because if someone's comfortable talking about, about God, you might be able to, you know, help sow some seeds of reality in there. And I think, but that's the really hard end of things. You know, if someone really thinks that they are uh, Jesus, then, you know, they, they will be in institutional care or should be. But for the vast majority of people, it's things like, you know, if they don't believe that God could ever love them, mm-hmm. or if, you know, their depression is so uh, severe that they, you know, can't see a future or that they're plagued with guilt feelings, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder and always feeling that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And I think that the, the vast majority of situations of mental ill health, we can still speak into those as Christians. Mm-hmm. And often people who've got mental ill health, they know that they need properly. They, they know they need forgiveness. They, they know they have guilt. They know that they need a saviour. I mean, one of my most, one of the people I look up to very much uh, spiritually is uh, is a, a woman who is you know, plagued with thoughts of self-harm. Uh, she has a severe personality disorder. She's been hospitalised for mental health many times. And yet she knows, you know, that, that God is the rock that she stands on and he's the one that she can depend on in the dark times and the better ones. And she's actually written a book about her experiences of self-harm and how God has helped her through that. Shameless plug is called Cut to the Soul by Sarah Louise Bedford, published by CMF. <laughs> Available in our bookstore. So it's a brand new book and I think, you know, it, it's unique in terms of writing about self-harm and its problems from a Christian perspective. And we found that it's been really well received. So if anyone's struggling with that for themselves or a loved one, have a look at our, at our website and our bookstore, put the links in the show notes. Um, yeah. He knows how it works. <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. So, so you know, we should never feel that mental health is a reason not to ask questions, not to offer compassion, and not to feel that God can help. It might be a challenge in different ways, but yeah, let's do it. Brilliant. Towards the end of March, the Law Commission announced that surrogacy laws were to be overhauled under new reforms that these new reforms were going to be benefiting the child surrogate and intended parents. Mark, do you get asked about surrogacy much at CMF? We do, yeah, because it's one of those thorny ethical issues where people, again, don't, don't often talk about it. You know, most of, most of you listening will know somebody born to a surrogacy arrangement or have friends who are considering that or have gone through that. You may not know that you know them, you may not know that that's how it happened, but it is certainly, you know, one of those issues that we're facing as a society. And, and obviously, you know, infertility and subfertility is a problem. The desire for a biological child is, is very understandable and that causes a great deal of pain for many, many families. And then, um, like in, in lots of situations, a, a technological solution is, is, or practical solution is presented and you can fully understand why people will think, you know, let's do that. I think there are lots of challenges around surrogacy and I'm, I'm glad that there is a legal framework around it in the UK. I'm glad that some of the loopholes are being tightened up. Mm-hmm. I think in general at CMF we wouldn't support surrogacy. We would, we would really want to make 
people think very carefully about the negative consequences of that because it's very easy to think, for instance, that you know the, the, the surrogate mother will often be forgotten after all of that. And you know, there are situations when surrogate mothers have carried a child for nine months, they've given birth to it, and then they don't want to give it up. And you can understand that, you know? And so there are terrible situations when surrogates have been essentially abused, or you know, when poor women in, in uh, resource-poor countries have been essentially coerced by financial incentives into doing that and you know, there's the, it's another of those things when you know, industry uh, and darker forces can take over but I think in general you know when it works best you know if you get a family who wants a child that they, they get a child the surrogate is okay with it it may even be a sort of extended family member who does the surrogacy but you're still bringing in unnecessary complexity so it's very different to adoption, mm. where in adoption you have a child that's already born and for whatever reason they can't stay with their parents and therefore you, know, you can bring hope and healing and a home to them. But then actually generating those problems necessarily when you don't have to, I'd say that raises more complexity than its own. So in the UK, so obviously it's legal, yeah, but it can't be done for commercial gain. That is my understanding. Um, I, but I fully I think I think you can pay for expenses, but you yes. can't pay for the service. The service. For the yeah. service. But many people go overseas yeah. to do this and probably do pay yeah. significantly. But what I also made yesterday was that in certainly for you in the UK, the the mother who the woman who carries the baby is the mother. Hmm. Until she kind of hands over. I can, there has to be a parenting order, or I can't remember the exact thing. Mm-hmm. So actually, if the surrogate carrying child doesn't want to, she doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is obviously there's a lot of trust involved, and yeah. that's where the challenge is. And I know in other countries, the law is different. But even some of the languages I find quite tricky, they talk about kind of the commissioning parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, for me, there is such a difference between something like adoption. Mm. Where adoption is a redemptive act. It's finding, bringing a home for a child that wouldn't have one. Mm. Whereas the very act of kind of commissioning, it it infers the commercial arrangement. And I think that, even if it's not for financial gain, it is still kind of a a consumerist approach. Mm. And I think, obviously, it's... For, for some for some couples or even for some single people now mm-hmm. it can be a way of providing a child that if you wouldn't otherwise be able to have one but is that something we should support because you can recognize the desire to have a child but actually does that translate into the the means by which that child comes into existence yeah and they're all great questions aren't they and and that those are why I would have significant misgivings about that and I think it does often raise more complexities it, it commodifies the child it makes it into a transaction you know the, the child is a thing which you commission and, and obtain and of course you can do it more or less ethically and I think the UK law is pretty good in that regard but still I don't think it's something that should be encouraged and and I think if you know if I had a friend come to me saying I'm thinking about this then I'd want to say okay you know I understand 
where you're coming from. At least I hope I would understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. But you know, there are a number of significant ethical things to think about, both for you, both for the child, both for the the surrogate mother, and then what it does to to society in our view of children parenting. So for for a Christian couple who are who are wanting to make decisions yeah. with a Christian worldview and framework, but for whatever reason the the woman isn't able to carry a child. Yeah. And therefore thinking about surrogacy, what are the ethical considerations they should work through and think through? Yeah, so it's things like what would be the arrangements with the surrogate mother? You know, would that be an ethical arrangement? Is that being fair? To, to them, how will uh, you as the parents feel if something goes wrong with the pregnancy, if the baby turns out to be disabled, if there's you know, some other hitches with it, if, if the surrogate child is only genetically related to one of the parents and that can cause other complications. Uh, and so just in those cases, is it usually a, is it usually the surrogate mother's egg used or is it another donor? You can do anything you want, essentially, because usually it would be done through in vitro fertilization. So it may be that the commissioning couple are, you know, actually perfectly able to have children, but for whatever reason they prefer not to to do that, and therefore you can you know, just purely commission it as a service. Or you see that a lot in celebrity. Exactly. Or that in yeah, exactly. They're, they're the things that often hit the headlines, aren't they? And but if either the father or the mother can't produce either sperm or egg that are functioning, then or if there is, or if the mother doesn't have, you know, a functioning womb or other mm. you know, practical reasons to carry a child, then you could have different, you know, different options with that. So all of the complexities around fertility treatment and IVF are often then mixed in with the fact that you have another woman in there carrying the child as well. I think the cultural narrative conversation around this is really interesting because you know i'm thinking growing up in watching various tv shows surrogacy was talked about in friends mm -hmm. and in Grey's anatomy mm -hmm. and always the dialogue around it is very much you know what a wonderful gift mm -hmm. a woman can give to another couple i'm finding this probably shouts about my demographic, but I, I keep getting adverts on Facebook and, and Instagram asking if I want to donate my eggs. I keep saying, no, I'll keep them, thank you very much. <laughs> and, and then I can't quite remember whether it was 2019 or 2020, but there was a BBC drama called The Nest, which mm -hmm. was possibly the most, well, maybe not so broad critical, but raised some of the more difficult questions mm -hmm. around surrogacy. It's not on surrogacy, but I, I found it really interesting. Have you been watching Race Across the World, Mark? I have not. Just. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> would, I hear good things. Oh, I would highly recommend. But one, one of the storylines, not a fair word, because it's, it's people's real lives, but there's been quite a thread in it about a couple who can't conceive. Mm -hmm. And over the course of their journey, they really come to, to think about adoption. And, yeah. and surrogacy is never brought up. But I, it's just... I don't really know what my question is, to be honest, but it's just it's just interesting how I guess it's it's typically presented as such a gift for women to do. And when it comes to technology advances, medical advances that allow us to do more things, how do we 
if something can bring someone joy or a good thing, how do we navigate the, that kind of moral, I was about to say the moral maze, but that's stealing another podcast, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and they're great questions, aren't they? And, and clearly, if, if a woman is going into this with altruistic reasons, thinking, you know, I can help, uh, you know, an infertile couple conceive, then there is, there can be an incredible degree of sacrifice, mm. giving, altruism, and you have to commend that. Mm. I would just want to step back and say, given that someone is willing to go to those lengths, is that the best way to use their, their sacrifice, their love, their altruism? Because that can be misguided, can't it? And, you know, you, you use the, the friends analogy, you know, you're not clearly going to get a detailed ethical discussion on, you know, on a, a US sitcom. <laughs> You know, but if that's what people hear about, you know, it's going to be quite gushy and and uh, and shallow. Whereas, you know, a, a detailed BBC documentary, not everyone's going to sit down and watch that. I think we do need to think very carefully about how these things are dropped into culture and conversations, and uh, and, and to think about the you know, the children involved because you know we all, as we grow, we start to think about where did I come from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when it's a really complex situation like that, that can cause its own mental health and identity problems for people. And I think it also raises questions about how do we value intervention in medical care? Yeah. So, and what do we support as being positive and part of life-supporting care? Yeah. And what do we think of as inappropriately interfering in yeah. life and in terms of it's kind of the core question of medical ethics really yes, yeah. and where is this something that actually this is in childbirth as a natural process but actually there are all sorts of medical like childbirth is a lot safer now than it used to be then that's thanks to good medical care and interventions and children and parents who weren't able to have children often are women who had struggled with miscarriages and mm. can have help to lessen the likelihood of that. So there are all sorts of things that we yeah. do that aid the childbirth process. But how do we judge those interventions where there's a threshold that says, actually, no, that is turning something into a consumerist behaviour for what someone wants, mm. rather than aiding what is a natural part of life? Yeah, I think there's some big questions they're involved. So, you know, what is the status of the unborn child? What is the status of the unborn embryo? Because if you take the view that many Christians do that life begins at fertilization and therefore they are a human made in God's image, then we shouldn't be experimenting on human embryos, you know, discarding them in IVF processes, that sort of thing. So that that's a very relevant consideration. If we are made in God's image, we shouldn't be transactionalized and that the you know, adoption is very different that you've got a child that is in existence it, you know for whatever reason they need a home mm. and then that purely is an altruistic end because you can provide a home for them there's lots of reasons why that's difficult for people but that that's very different to then creating a child with all the potential ethical problems around it and i guess that there's other issues like giving false hope to people you know people clearly Many people want to have biological children and they, you know, they, they have hopes and dreams for a family. And if we're holding out this hope, you, know, you can get that dream by you know, paying this money, 
commission this service and it will provide you with what you what you hope for. It may not. You know, all of the ethical complexities that come around it, often years, decades down the line, you don't think so easily about that in the time of, you know, oh, isn't that wonderful and what a gift that you can give to someone. Mm. So I think I, I want to think much more carefully about the, the yeah, is there a child there already that needs mm. adoption or are we just creating more problems by generating one in a, in a, a complex way that, that has ethical challenges that we don't always know about. Mm. And uh, I've been thinking around the, the ethicals, ethical ins and outs of abortion recently and thinking about how as a church, this will connect to surrogacy, I promise, but how as mm. a church we both have really clear you know, good, joyful teaching mm. about sex and its its place and its role in marriage, whilst mm. making church a place that a single mother mm. or a woman who has had an abortion in the past, mm. yeah, a, a pregnant woman in whatever circumstance she might have reached mm. that situation, mm. would feel so welcomed and mm. so loved in a church and how it's difficult to do both and, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't we shouldn't do it. Yeah. And I guess I have a similar question when it comes to surrogacy, how, how, just how do we be wise as individuals and churches in being clear and thought through on surrogacy mm. whilst making sure we don't cast shame on parents who already have children through mm. surrogacy or children, like you said, who have come back through surrogacy. We don't, you know, there's, there's no point to putting shame yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it doesn't help, does it? And I think, you know, when a child is there, then we need to love them, welcome them. If your family is there who've, you know, got their child through whatever means, you know, how many of us are perfect in you know, yeah. the way that, you know, we've brought up our children or have a family life? None of us are. And so if we were into sort of, you know, unless you had the perfect family background, then you're not welcome in church. That's crazy. So I think we would want to, you know, just like you're doing parenting courses in church doesn't mean that you're not welcome if you're not a perfect parent. You know, it's you're holding out the hope that there's always something better and helping us to, to reach towards that. We've got to try to avoid casting judgment on people. So, you know, there'll be people listening to this podcast that have children through surrogacy or are thinking about it. And I want them to know, you know, that child is loved made in God's image and, and you as parents are as well. There's no there's no desire at all to make people feel guilty for the sake of it. I clearly want people to think, okay, you know, was that the best decision? Is this the best decision? Might there be another way? But we've all made th you know, decisions that we might feel ambivalent about or maybe it wasn't the best thing to do, but hey, you know, God restores mm. and, he, and he forgives and he brings better things out of it. So. I think, you know, yeah, there is no point in looking back and just heaping guilt on people or creating that. But I think we can all still think, what what might God be calling us to do in the future? Okay, big breath. I say it every week, but you can follow us on social media to see what the advocacy team and the wider EA team is up to throughout the week. So you can follow us on Twitter, EA UK News on Instagram, Evangelical Lives, and you can get in touch via email, cross.section at eauk.org. 
Mark, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a member organisation of the Evangelical Alliance. Well, I'm going to answer that question on two levels, Joe, because I am an individual member of the EA and the Christian Medical Fellowship is an organisation member. And I'm, well, I'm pretty sure that my church is a church member of the EA as well, so I'm going to answer it on three levels. <laughs> I have just been so grateful for the support of the EA in recent years and working in my job as the Christian Medical Fellowship. We are enthusiastic organisational members of the EA and it brings such uh, sort of support and partnership with other EA members and the advocacy team. We work really closely with them on lots of these complicated issues. So that's why it's just such a joy to be on the podcast, Joe. Sure, sure. But it's, it, it is fantastic. And I think one of the things that I see is that together we can be stronger and, you know, we will have different, uh, different uh, specialisms and interests and, and, and opportunities, but working together as evangelicals within the EA is incredibly important. So that's for, from the Christian Medical Fellowship, but individually I know that I'm part of something bigger and just by, you know, what is it, where, is it a caramel latte or something like that? And <laughs> uh, the biggest worth, how often You're would that doing be? an excellent job of proving that you actually listen to this one, ah, Yes, about perhaps even cheaper than a caramel latte. I was going to say, if you get a caramel latte for three pounds, <laughs> you're doing well. Brilliant. You know, so it's it's a very small amount and just to be able to, to put into the EA and think, you know, I am contributing to unity amongst evangelicals, you know, being salt and light in, in society, uh, supporting churches and organisations and individuals. I mean, what's not to like, Joe? Thanks, Mark. And, and tell us a bit about the CMF and how people could get involved with that. Well, I'm glad you asked that. So I mentioned that we're 4,800 uh, Christian doctors, nurses, midwives and students. There are so many out there who shockingly don't know about the Christian Medical Fellowship or haven't joined us. And so equally, we would love any Christian healthcare carer out there to, to get involved in CMF and to join up. And in the show notes, there will be information about how to do that. So cmf.org.uk, you can join up as a member and be part of what we do. If that's too much commitment, you can join as a free friend and get on our mailing list. But do check out our website. And you know, if anyone wants to email me, admin at cmf.org.uk, Tell me why they're not a member, okay? Because if anyone says, I've got three good reasons why I'm not a member of CMF, I'd love to know that. And I'll see if I can convince them otherwise. Thanks, Mark. I will also put the CMF website on the cross-section webpage this week. You're very kind. Finally, we're gonna end cross-section this week with talking about assisted suicide. Not a light end to the podcast, but an important topic to talk about. And with having Mark here, it seems a great opportunity to talk about it. Danny, could you just tell us where the UK is at in terms of the law around assisted suicide? Well, there have been multiple attempts in Westminster to introduce uh, various different laws around assisted suicide or assisted dying, and they have all been rejected over the last 20 years. Uh, where this is currently a very live question is in Scotland. Uh, the Scottish Parliament will at some point in the coming year consider a bill uh, to introduce assisted dying. Uh, we have a private member's bill uh, from Liberal Democrat MSP Liam MacArthur. He received enough support to introduce it and that will happen. It could be at any time, I think, over the next year, probably 
in the autumn of this year is the expected timeline. And just this week, a number of church leaders spoke out and expressed their deep concern over some of those plans. In fact, uh, that was just on Wednesday this week. And I've seen this week there was a tweet coming out uh, about a survey in Canada and views towards assisted suicide and what were kind of seen as, as different valid reasons for why. So Canada has probably the most permissive um, assisted suicide regime and it's called MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying, and it has progressively expanded. And I think this is one of the prime concerns that those who oppose legislation cite, is that you might start with a very narrow category of where assisted dying might be permitted, but the pressure to increase it and what forms of illness are included increases. So at the moment, I don't think it's actually coming to force, but it's due to come into force that uh, the Canadian system will also cover mental illness as well as physical, physical illness. And then this survey came out that demonstrated that 27% of people think people should have access to euthanasia because of poverty, 28% because of homelessness, and 43% because of mental illness, and 50% for being disabled. So these aren't necessarily life-threatening illnesses, but not only physical conditions, mental conditions, and then even beyond that as well. And Tom Holland, the historian, slight closet Christian, on the fence Christian, <laughs> working thing. He's on a journey. He's working things out. Not yet Christian, but uh, yeah, definitely, yes. definitely yes. close. Very friendly. Yeah. We pray on. He he tweeted that uh, something like this is what a post-Christian society looks like. Well, Mark, do you think what's coming up calendar? I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm struggling to think, is the UK going to take this as a huge warning? Like, we've got to run in the opposite direction because this, you know, once you, once you crack open that door, this is where things lead. Or is it going to be seen as, as a shining example? It very much depends on your, on your view, Joe. I mean, I look at what's happening in Canada with a curious mixture of horror and gratitude. Because on the one hand, you know, you look and think, oh my goodness, you know, we, people talk about the slippery slope, this is a cliff. Mm. You know, people are just, you know, going, you know, the, the law first came into effect in 2016. For them, it was basically terminalist. You had to have a reasonably foreseeable death. There was a court case in 2019, two disabled people in Quebec. They said that was unconstitutional. Shortly after that, it was extended to disabled people and those with chronic illnesses. As Danny said, there was a proposal bound up in that, that in 2023, this year, that it would come in that you could have euthanasia purely for mental illness. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that has been paused, I think, until next year. So that's a, there's a chink of light there that even people in Canada are saying we're not ready for this. And yet you just see the inevitable logical progression in the march of that. And that, that, you know, those figures that you quoted, Danny, they are scary. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the 18s to 34s, you know, the young adults, you know, who will be, you know, voting and before long, you know, those in Parliament, you know, I think it was 41% of that group were positive about euthanasia on the grounds of poverty and homelessness. Yeah. And more than 50% thought you should have it on the grounds that you couldn't get the medical treatment that you want. And I debated that with, uh, with a Canadian euthanasia doctor just this week called Ellen Weave. It's coming out on the premier unbelievable podcast this weekend. 
and, and, and that was really fascinating, quite chilling, because she, she gave a couple of examples of people who might qualify for that. And, you know, one example she gave was of a man who's a fairly unpleasant character, doesn't get on well with his, with his carers, you know, his housing's not good, his medical treatment isn't what he needed to. You know, would he qualify for euthanasia? Yes, he would. And, and then I said to her, well, you know, basically you're saying that that's euthanasia because he's poor and unpleasant. And, you know, and really with the view that, that she's taking is very much, it, it is his right, you know, we must grant him his right. And so, well, you know, it, it, do people have a right to good housing? No, they don't in Canada. And then the question is, well, shouldn't they? You know, and it's just incredible to think that the, the sort of the, the rights-based mentality there is, is, is so strong that you can demand people's right, you know, to have euthanasia on the grounds of significant mental illness, for instance, or poverty or an inability to get medical conditions, but you wouldn't campaign and say, how on, you know, how on earth have we gone so wrong as a society that it's, it's better for us to offer medicalised death to people than it is to reform our housing association, our healthcare system, etc. So I think it's a massive, massive warning to us in the UK, but it also really puts it into sharp focus that when we hear campaigns in the UK and the British Isles, so often from dignity and dying, for instance, it's, don't worry, it's just about terminally or mentally competent adults with six months or less left to live. And it's not going to extend beyond that. We don't want it to, and of course it's not going to. And then you have groups like My Death, My Decision, who actively want to bring in Canadian style euthanasia mm. in the UK. And you think, clearly, you know, it's going to go further yeah. than that. And one of the things that I'm really grateful to Canada for is that they're actually making sensible people in the UK, legislators, media commentators, who in principle can see the, the arguments for assisted dying. It's making the thing, but we do not want to go there. You know, where is it going to take us? And I think it's making people question it and roll back because it's not about where a law will start. Mm. It's about where it will finish, you know, in five, 10, 20 years. And uh, so Canada is both a warning uh, and uh, no, it's just a massive warning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, yeah, the warning is concerning for what's happening in Canada, but it can be helpful because it illustrates what happens. I, I find this wrestle around the personal autonomy and the fact that if he wants to die, he can die. Or if he wants mental assistance to take his own life, yeah. he can have it. To be so almost hard to navigate them all. Kind of what autonomy are we giving people? But then it's not just the autonomy you're giving that one person, but it's the message and the culture it creates. Yeah that creates a sense that actually for people who do have long-term illness, who do have mental health challenges, who are homeless or in poverty, it creates a culture and a context where they feel their life isn't worth living. Yeah. And it's what we're saying and what, to be honest, it's not about the dignity in dying, it's what dignity in life we're giving to people. Yeah. Or saying actually, if you don't have any dignity in life, you might as well have some dignity in your death. Yeah. And actually that, as you say, rather than reforming the problems that are affecting people's life, we're saying, oh no, no, we can help you change your life. And that just feels totally turned upside down to me. It feels like it's trying to find a simple solution to complex problems. Mm. You know, if, if this, it's like 
you know, we walk past homes, people. I, I, we live in London. We we all live in London in, on this podcast today. We walk past homeless people all the time, and it's saying it would be better for him or her to die than to find a solution to the poverty that they're in. And it's 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 a it's a solution or it's a system totally devoid of hope, isn't it? Of of finding solutions and saying that that things can improve and and putting value on that life. I think it's it's poignant talking about this on Mental Health Awareness Week, where what we want to be saying to people who are really struggling and in very difficult situations with their mental health is is there is hope to be found. Mm-hmm. You know, death is not the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that the hope question is really important. And you know, the the campaigns always start around difficult end of life situations. And then they always extend further beyond that. Because, you know, of course, dying can be unpleasant and painful. And thankfully, palliative care, when done well, can can ameliorate the vast majority of the situations and make them better and make them bearable. But as soon as we say, you know, that is not acceptable, I want to have control, I want to be able to choose not to go through that, then the, the language of choice and autonomy takes over. And if you grant autonomy for one person, how can you grant it not for another person? And then it's, you know, about my suffering, and if one person suffers and you grant them assisted dying, why can't we do it for someone else? So they, it's the, the complexities are vast, mm. and, and no country really has found a place where, you know, they can draw a hard and fast line, and then, you know, people, the next group of people won't say, what about me? Mm. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on Cross Ocean today. I think it is possibly the longest episode we've ever recorded, but the conversation has been fascinating. I've not wanted to to stop. So thank you very much for being with us. Always a pleasure to come on one of my favourite podcasts, Jo. <laughs> we've mentioned it a few times. It is Mental Health Awareness Week. So as we close the podcast today, let me say first, if you are someone who is struggling, please reach out to someone today, whether that's a loved one, whether that's a healthcare professional, whether that's a helpline, reach out, seek help. It's very worth doing. And secondly, if you are someone who is perhaps in a great place mentally, but you know of someone who might be struggling or someone that you've just not heard from in a while, why don't you send them a message, tell them that you're thinking about them. It could make a world of difference. Thank you so much for listening to Cross Section. We'll be back next week. Hi. It's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.